brought me from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 to 22 and this is part 9 in our series in the epistle to the Ephesians. So last week in our series on Ephesians we looked at that great passage from verses 8 to 10 because when it comes to our salvation we could either be saved by someone else or we could try and save ourselves through good works and that never works, no pun intended. The only one, the only way we could be saved therefore is by somebody else and that someone else is Jesus Christ. And because we have been saved then we go on to work and do the things that he prepared for us in advance for us to do. So this morning we are dealing with another massive issue. And it has to do with the emotive issue of racial and national distinctions within the world. That's a big one. Most people treat it as if it's only an issue that's been around for a couple of hundred years or so. But it goes back a lot a lot further than that, way, way back. And the oldest and, and the greatest of all is the racial, national, political and religious separation that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles in biblical times. So we note that in, the, in, in chapter 2, the first 10 verses of this chapter, the, the Apostle is deals with us in a more personal, individual basis. But in the rest of the chapter, he deals with the subject more collectively, as a group. And this is because he deals with the past, present and future of the church. And he has a lot to say about the church in Ephesians. And he again uses a technique, the technique of contrast, which he used in in verse 4. So the first three verses he talks and then he says, but God. And, And now to highlight again, he uses the same technique that we used to, this is what we used to be like, but then God did something amazing. So let's first of all look at our our major first major heading and that's alienation in verses 11 to 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the human by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Sometimes we like to look at old photos. I don't know if you're like me. And uh, maybe we don't like to look at them because we sometimes hit with a little bit of nostalgia, remembering with fondness and some sadness what things used to be like. But there is no nostalgia here as the Apostle Paul looks back because 
because of the bad memories of our former life. We don't like to look back. Remember that Paul is writing to believers in the city of Ephesus who were mostly Gentiles. They were called the uncircumcision. And who called them that? They were called that by the Jews who were the circumcision because they were the circumcised. If your kids don't know what circumcision is, then ask your mum and dad. They can explain it. And and Paul is using the, the nicest term to refer to the Gentiles, to refer to the pagans. There were other terms that weren't so nice, like dogs, etc. A common motto for the Jew towards the Gentile was this. This is the Jew towards the Gentile. And this was a common thing that they used to say in the day was, and I quote, the best of the serpents crushed them and the best of the Gentiles killed them. End of quote. Mind you, mind you, the animosity, the hostility between both groups, Jews and Gentiles, was more than mutual. To the Gentile, the Jew was always a threat that you needed to stay away from, not have anything to do with them, and if possible, eliminate them. In the book of Esther, we read of the earliest plans to exterminate the Jewish race. And then God used Esther to intervene. In Paul's day, all the Jews were banished, kicked out of the city of Rome. Then you had the Inquisition, when they went after the Jews and the Christians, the Protestants. A couple of thousand years later, after these events, during Paul's day, a couple of thousand years later, of course, Hitler came up with his final solution. And we know what happened then. And and, and many, many studies tried to find the socio-historical, political reasons for anti-Semitism the hatred towards the Jews. But most avoid the most obvious one, the spiritual reason. And I think it's not so much the Jew that they hate, it's their God that they hate. You won't find too many people admitting that. It's their God that they hate. And it's rather interesting that in the Old Testament, God never made a covenant with the Gentiles. He certainly made promises that included the Gentiles, but their blessing went through his people, through, the, the, through Israel and then the Jewish community. For example, within his promise to Abraham, we read, And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. That's 
Genesis 12, verse 3. So all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. That doesn't sound like you are to go out there and hate everybody else. That doesn't sound like that, does it? In fact, they were to be a light to the nations. They were to be a blessing to the nations. And Israel was certainly more than privilege for God to be their God. In Amos, and the prophets had a lot to say this, both the mates, the big prophets and the minor prophets, they all went in hammer and tong towards targeting Israel, God's people. They certainly targeted other nations, but mainly God's people because of this tremendous privilege that they had. In Amos, for example, we read God saying to his people in, in Amos chapter 3 and the first part of verse 2 says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Wow, that's privilege, right? Right there. You only. The creator of the universe, the stars, and everything that you see chooses one particular people. You only have I chosen. But it was a privilege, as always, privilege carries responsibility. Spider-Man tells us that. But unfortunately, Israel never really quite lived up to this privilege because of their sins. Rather than see themselves as unique, they wanted to be like all the other nations. And they never quite abandoned God, but they wanted to have God and all the other gods as well. Idolatry. And and, and, and then... It was corrupted because being chosen, being privileged, became, rather than a blessing, it became a matter of national pride. So the verse continues, the second part of Amos chapter 3 verse 2, the second part of that is, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Notice that, that this is a crucial verse. Let's read it again. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your sins. See, I'm supposed to be loved by you and yet you're going to punish me? How does that work? Well, it's because you were chosen. Now, this has tremendous implications for us who are children of God, who were chosen by God, who, who, who have been blessed by God in so many different ways. You only have I loved, and therefore, this is your responsibility. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, this is what's going to happen. There's no mucking around here. There was a large separation, a great gulf that was between the Jew and the Gentile. Even when a, a Gentile wanted to come and worship and follow the true and the living God, they had to become a Jew first with all the rituals like circumcision that came along with it. They couldn't do it. There was no other way for them to come to God. 
So these pagans were not only hated and despised, but they were Christless. It says here they were separate from Christ. Now, in, in, in a real way, we, we were all without Christ at one stage, right? But there's more to it here. What he means is you were without a Messiah. That's what Christ is. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word. This is because the Messiah was not promised to the Gentiles. It was the Messiah, Messiah was promised to Israel. And, and Jesus himself acknowledged this when he spoke to the Canaanite woman. You remember that. He said to her in Matthew 15, 24, that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And most translations have here, instead of the words citizenship, which the NIV has, it actually has the word commonwealth. Now, we understand the word commonwealth. In Australia, we're part of the commonwealth. That we share in the blessings, securities, the laws, a certain form of government that you are a member of, and, and therefore there are responsibilities. And for most part, I think it's worked pretty well. The Jews were the, the commonwealth of Israel, God's holy nation. And they were bound to God through his covenant promises. The Gentiles had none of this. They didn't have it. They didn't have God's laws. They didn't have all these other principles and statutes. So the Jews were very, very privileged. The awful prospect of the Gentiles is summarised in this statement. And um, we... I, th- I think Paul just captures here what it exactly is like to live in a world without God. He says, without hope and without God in the world. It's a very sad way to be. Without hope and without God in the world. This is what it was like before Christ was born, before the gospel was taken to the Gentiles and to the ends of the earth through the different missionaries. This is what it was like. No gospel, no hope, no purpose, no God, no heaven. And this is the reason why we are told to share the gospel, to share the good news with unbelievers. And we send missionaries to the world. We support missions. This is why we do it, because we know that they have no hope, they have no God, they have no no future What else is there to live for? Well, there is the other side of that, of course, that, well, we might find it unbearable and and meaningless to, to live like this. Many today have turned this around. And, and, well, we think of it as being a negative, they actually turned it into a, a positive. This is what John Lennon did in his song. Voted as the most influential and popular song in the world. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Living for 
today. And this is what many are doing, living for today. They're not just imagining it. The song was called Imagine It. This is how they're actually living. You heard about the expression, think of yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. Just, just do what feels good. Just go with it. Just, it's your money. It's your body. You do it. You, 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 if you don't like it, just quit. Just go. Don't worry about it. Just walk away. It's you. Just live for today because, you know, live, you know, we only have this life and that's it. Don't worry about it. There's nothing else. It's not like there's this big boogeyman out in heaven, you know, who's going to hit your head once you die. No, it's you. It's nothing else. Look at our world around us. It's exactly how it is. Without God, without hope in the world. There's no one to be accountable to. We also need to clarify something else here from from Paul's words, that when he says without God in the world, they they, they actually had many gods with a small g. They had gods of stone, of wood, the gods of the sea, like Neptune and the gods of the mountains and the sky and the sun and the moon. But when he came to the, to, to the one true living God, they were atheoi, they, they, they were atheists, they were without God. We, we tend to think of the pagan world as irreligious, but it's, it's, it's the opposite, they are very, very spiritual. The, the pagans want all the religion they can get. This is why there are so many temples, so many shrines, so many offerings, there's so many rules and regulations. You go in Asia and there's a little offering in the little corner in every shop. You drive through South America and there's little little shrine here, even though it's a Catholic country, there's a little shrine for some saint somewhere and they leave it a bottle of wine, whiskey, whatever it is, as an offering. I don't know how long it lasts, but they leave it there. Without the true and living God, no relationship with him. So therefore, you have to you know, live this neurotic life in fear and trying to appease the spirits so that life works out for you. But then comes the change. Then comes the the dramatic intervention. Just like in verse 4, in verse 13, there is the change that happened. Uh, When things are as bad as they can get, we are introduced to this conjunction of contrast. Uh, And here is how things were But now, once far away, but now brought near. And this is the word from verses 13 to 
18 is the word reconciliation. But now in Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made two groups, one, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. A few years ago, an an archaeologist was digging on the site of the temple in Jerusalem and, and he found one of the stone pillars which was set up as a barrier between parts of the temple area. And this barrier was, uh, was about five foot high. In Jesus' time, there was an outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. If you, unless you, you know, you couldn't get any closer. That's where you, the Gentiles had to stay. And then there was the court of the Jewish women, and then there was a court for the men, and a court for the priests. And the inscription read, on this discovery, the inscription read, and I quote, No man of another nation is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death has ensured. That's a very striking picture of the wall of hostility, right? You know, sometimes you go to the bush and you see these signs. No trespassing. All trespassers will be prosecuted. This one is all trespassers will be persecuted. Terminated. You couldn't cross. And it's it's interesting that I was going to say it was a touch of irony, but there's no irony in God's economy, okay? in that I think it's significant that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was finally arrested and condemned by the Jews while in Jerusalem on the basis of a false accusation that he took Trophimus, who was one of his helpers, Trophimus, who was born in Ephesus, beyond the barrier. That was the accusation that he took a Gentile beyond this barrier while he was in the temple. So as a Roman citizen, he appealed to Caesar, which bought him some time and it all took him all the way to Rome for his trial, which is where he was when he wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. But it all started there, at the temple, 
accused of bringing a Gentile through the wall of hostility. We read, let me read to you from Acts chapter 21, verses 27 to 29. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Some Jews from the province of Asia. What was Asia? That's where Ephesus was. So some Jews were there. They, were, they knew who Paul was because he had ministered. He stayed in Ephesus for a few years. And they pursued him. They, went, they were trying to find a way to get to Paul. And they did it back in Jerusalem. And they said, it says, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Why? Because, and Luke explains this, he says, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. It was a false accusation. It was a setup. And they believed it. That's how serious they were about any Gentiles getting anywhere near the temple. They could come and worship from afar, but not close. So they were excluded from the community of God's people. But then something happened in a point of time. Through Jesus, the work was done that brought those who were far away through the cross, they were brought near and reconciled to God. The word reconcile means to bring together again. That's what it means. As we know, sin promises so much, but the result is the opposite. It hurts, it kills, it destroys and the effects, the pain continues on and on. This is why sin is the great separator in this world. It has been dividing people ever since the beginning of human history. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They were separated from God Before long, their sons, they were separated from each other and Cain killed his brother Abel. After that, the earth was filled with violence, which continues to this day. And it was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross which abolish the enmity between Jews and Gentiles and, and, and got us access to the true and living God. There was no more wall. And Jesus brought peace by destroying those things which stood in the way of peace. When we, in this day and age, when we talk about peace, we sort of want to go soft and, yeah, let's just be more understanding and, and, and reflect and consider. That's how we know the language of peace usually is spoken. But Jesus didn't do it by tolerating or compromising or negotiating some peace or truce. 
Just notice, just note the language that Paul uses here, the, the, the destructive ministry of Jesus. This is what he says, this is the language he uses. He says, destroyed the barrier, setting aside in his flesh. What does that mean? That he was a sacrifice, he was tortured and, and killed on the cross. Destroyed the barrier, setting aside in his flesh and put to death their hostility. He didn't muck around. There is no flowery, poetic, romantic language here. It's pretty direct. It had to be drastic because so much was at stake. And the way that God works in us is a heart transplant. That's what he does. The surgery is instant, doesn't take too long. But the recovery takes some time. Ezekiel said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. How does that work in real life? For 15 years, Mike Burden held hate-filled meetings in the shop. It was a memorabilia shop in his small town for 15 years. But in 2012, when his wife began to question his involvement, his heart started to soften. He's, he realised he, he, how wrong his racist views were and, and didn't want to be that person any longer. He hated who he was. And the militant group retaliated by kicking his family out of the apartment they'd been renting because the apartment belonged to one of the members of this particular group. So where would he and his family go? Surprisingly, he went to the local black pastor with whom he had previously clashed. And what did the pastor and his church do? The pastor and his church provided housing and groceries for Mike's family for a good time afterwards and help him recover. That's how it works. We look at the news and, and there's always some racial, political tension between different groups. And there are historical reasons, there are political reasons, there are social reasons, religious reasons, economic reasons. It goes on and on. And there's always the press or, or someone, some particular group with particular interests who, who seeks to take advantage of the situation and we need more conflict, we need more of this. But the business of the church is never to feed divisiveness and throw more fuel on the fire. It's never that. We should not attack those unlike us or those who hold different opinions or even those who seek to destroy us and there are many of those. Ours is a ministry of reconciliation and the greatest reconciliation is between man and God. That's what Jesus came to do. 
There's no room for pride or boasting because it's all God's work. Who changes people's hearts? God does. I can't change people's hearts. God does. So you're a Christian, are you proud of that? Be grateful, I would say. That's a better word. Be grateful. Eternally grateful. Have you been brought in a, in a good, stable family with good education provided by your parents and fed? You've got a roof over your head, you've got clothes. Are you proud of that? No, I would say be grateful. This is why Spurgeon once said, be not proud of race, face, place or grace. Be not proud. Race, face, place or grace. Just be grateful. Be grateful. Construction. Construction, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. What is all this language here? It's it's a language of construction, of building. I know, I used to do this stuff. There's a grand construction project going on and it will continue on until the day he returns. Christ is the the cornerstone of this building. In in ancient building practices, in old building practices, and I think in many places of the world it's still used, the, the the cornerstone is this substantial stone from which the rest of the structure is determined. As the name suggests, it sits in a corner and you look at it, you start, this is where your building is going to start. That is your first stone that you lay down and you go in that direction, you go in that direction. It gives you your angles, it gives you the, the, the direction of, what the, of where the building is facing and it also gives you your levels from which everything else will be built upon. And just as the cornerstone holds two adjoining walls together, a wall coming this way, a wall going that way, Christ holds the Jews and the Gentiles together. They come together and they're joined in him. If you're in Christ, we're not the cornerstone, but we are a part of that building a little brick somewhere down the road, somewhere down the line, that is part of that building that God is constructing. You have been fitted together, I know, with me, unfortunately, and with the rest of the church. 
These bricks have many different colours. Are they joined together? And, and this is why the, the Apostle Paul, if you note this, these, these verses, the, the word one appears a few times in, our, in, our, in the text because this is the unifying work of Christ. He makes us into one. This is what God has done. He made the two groups one, verse 14. It, one humanity out of the two, that's verse 15. Then one body in verse 16. And then one spirit in verse 18. And, and you see what the world, you look at the world, we, we are, you know, we, we're being separated into different subgroups, minority groups. There's this group here and that group there and a minority group there and another minority group there and everybody has their own interests. And suddenly I thought we were all trying to come together into one and suddenly we find ourselves, no, they're, they're, leave them alone, they're, they're okay, they're okay, they're okay. We've all been separated. And dispersed. And suddenly there's a distance, the humanity. And, but this is what God does and continues to work. Because the devil, Satan, the enemy is constantly trying to divide us. He gives us three pictures that illustrate the unifying work of Christ. First of all, it's, it's the kingdom. He says a kingdom, verse 19, the first part. Remember how in verse 12 the Gentiles used to be stateless, they used to be outsiders, they were out there, but now they are fellow citizens in God's kingdom. You have a home. But more than that, the second part of verse 19, we are not just a kingdom, a kingdom is one thing because you you know you get to live in the land you're part of this kingdom but now you're part of a household you're part of a family we are we belong we're brothers and sisters in Christ the gentiles find themselves not just fellow citizens that we live on the same street but we are together part of God's family we are children of the same family this is much more personal language again. The thing is that when you're part of a family, as you call the family together, as you draw near, there's less elbow room, right? The closer you get together. No, no, leave me alone. You know, I want my own space here. But in God's kingdom, in God's family, we're brought together. We're brought near. And the other image, the other picture he gives us is a temple in verses 20 to 22. A temple, of course, is a, we know what a temple is. It's a place where you go to meet your deity, your God. Upon reading this letter, the Jews would have thought of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. The Gentiles would have thought of the great temple of Artemis, which was in the city of Ephesus. As we know, both temples were destined to be destroyed. But the temple that Christ is building will last forever. It's not going to get destroyed. It's a promise. So in this, to finish up, 
In this broken world, God continues to do his repair work, his restoration, his reconciliation, his heart transplant, one life at a time. And as we have been brought near to God, we are brought closer to each other. And sometimes it's good to remember where we have come from and be thankful to where we are going. And no, while we don't live for today, the fact that we do have a hope, we do have a future, affects how we live in the present. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. Be careful how you live your life. Let let your light shine in the midst of this dark world. John John Newton was the, uh, as you know, the converted slave trader who later became a preacher and a hymn writer. He's the one that wrote Amazing Grace. And um, on his desk he had a text from the book of Deuteronomy to remind him of what he was rescued from and what he was rescued to. And his text was Deuteronomy 15.15. And this is what he had on his, on his desk. He said, remember, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. I've redeemed you. I've rescued you. Remember that. And therefore, for that reason, I give you this command. This is how you are to live. It's good, isn't it? It's a good reminder. Let's give thanks to God for his amazing grace. Amen.